0: Rajna Sparks, a podcast where we listen to a dharma teaching, contemplate through conversation and song, and engage in guided meditation. In this episode, we're delving into nirvana, the cessation of suffering.
1: This peace so profound, this unpolluted uncreated, clear light, this nectar-like dharma I have found, to whomever I may teach it, it would remain an enigma. So I will remain silent and stay here alone in the forest. This actually is the first teaching of the Buddha Shakyamuni. The words he said to himself alone in the forest beneath the Bodhi tree where he attained enlightenment. In our last episode, we talked about craving. The key to the first half of the more commonly attributed first teaching of the Buddha, because it was the first public discourse, usually called the Four Noble Truths. Those four truths are divided into halves, as I just mentioned. The first two relate to samsara true suffering, and the true origin of suffering. Again, that word suffering really in Sanskrit is dukkha, much broader than what we normally think of as the more obvious forms of suffering. And then the second half of those four truths of noble beings, of realized beings, relate to nirvana, true cessation, and the true path leading to that cessation. What is that cessation talking about? It's talking about what happens when we put a stop to that vicious cycle, which in Sanskrit is called samsara, of rebirth, illness, aging, and death, rebirth, illness, aging, and death, on and on again. There are different approaches to explaining how that happens. And there are different approaches to describing nirvana, describing the cessation and describing the details of that true path with its eight limbs or branches to that path. There's a complete agreement as to what those eight branches are, but there are differences among different Buddhist traditions about how to elaborate those eight branches, which I will call here right view right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I want to say something about the words right and true. We hear about right view, right intention, etc. Sometimes this is called correct view or authentic view, It's a comparison between the way samsara functions and the way samsara unravels. So the view is right when it is in line with what unravels samsara, what leads to liberation and omniscience. It's correct, authentic, and genuine because of the progress towards that end. And then the word true, when we talk about the four truths, very often they are called the truth of suffering, the truth of cessation, the truth of the origin, the truth of the path. I like to term them very directly. True suffering, true origin, true cessation, true path. Again, true here does not mean this is true, everything else is false. It has that sense of true that is like a wheel that is true because it moves without impediment, an arrow that is so finely crafted that as soon as it is let loose from a bow, it flies perfectly and without any wavering towards the bullseye of its target. That's the kind of true we're talking about here. The four truths, if we want to look at the Cliff Notes version, are basically this, recognize suffering, eliminate its origin, actualize the cessation of that origin by relying on the path. So we can see that those four truths are not really things to believe or to champion. There are things to do. The Buddha is extremely pragmatic. But what I wanted to focus on even more today is, what is this nirvana? What's actually left when we pull out that linchpin of the 12 links of interdependence, the craving we talked about in the previous episode? What's left when we upend the entire architecture of samsara by eradicating ignorance of the true nature of things. One of the more radical aspects of the Buddha's teachings is that what he is saying is, you don't have to construct something newly. By simply upending samsara, simply in quotes, what's left is nirvana. How can that be? from the perspective of the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism that I practice. The explanation for that is simply that samsara is a misperception. The reason ignorance is at the root of samsara is because samsara itself is a misperception of reality that has been reinforced time and again until we are locked into a habit that we don't even realize we have. This helps us to understand a little bit more how it is that nirvana can be a cessation. In our tradition, we describe three kinds of nirvana or three vehicles, three approaches to nirvana, and they relate to the practitioner styles that undertake those vehicles, those approaches. So if you have a particular path, that leads you to a particular endpoint, a particular nirvana in this case. So, what are those three? First is in Sanskrit, shravaka, which means one who hears a disciple, one who really takes in the Buddha's teachings and follows them with strict precision. Then there's the prateka Buddha, the solitary realizer. The story around these is that in a time when there is no teaching Buddha, when there is no dharma available, these prateka buddhas, solitary realizers, reawaken in their own mind stream, previous lives of study and practice so that they attain their particular nirvana. Then there is the bodhisattva. Bodhisattva means the being of enlightenment or warrior, the hero. These are individuals who undertake a path of nirvana that leads to Buddhahood. So, now we've got a couple of variations here because different traditions of Buddhism developed different ways of interpreting the Buddha's teachings and different ways of understanding the endpoint, the results, the fruition of those teachings of the practice put into play. So what is called nirvana, what is described as nirvana, from the perspective of the Kagyu lineage, falls into what is described as liberation on one hand and omniscience on the other. So very often you will hear descriptions such as liberation and omniscience, or nirvana and Buddhahood or perfect and complete enlightenment. What do all those mean? They simply mean that there is an evolution of consciousness that we're working with. If samsara is a misperception, it's necessarily a misperception experienced by consciousness. Our left toe does not experience misperception. (laughs) It's our consciousness that experiences misperception. That misperception is what leads us to incorrectly align with negative intentions and negative actions, even though what we wish is to attain a positive, happy result, unaware that what that does is lead to more dukkha. That's the klesha, karma, dukkha refrain that we talked about for the last few episodes. So liberation is the cutting of that cycle, releasing oneself completely from that involuntary rebirth in samsara, that involuntary cycling through rebirth, illness, aging, death, over and over again, never knowing if the next time around we will have all of the privileges and all of the good conditions that we experience now so that most of our dukkha is the kind of dukkha that feels like pleasure, shifting dukkha, shifting suffering, literally called the suffering of change, or whether the next time around most of our dukkha will be the obvious forms of suffering, technically the suffering of suffering. Liberation from samsara uh, can be that state of the arhat, completely pacified, all kleshas, all karma is... In a state of essentially dormancy, while past actions can still give rise to fruits of experience, there is no new karma happening. Why? We talked about that earlier. Karma is action motivated by kleshas. The intention is klesha, a mindset that is disturbed relative to the natural tranquility of mind. So the arhat has completely cut that cycle altogether. There will never be another rebirth in samsara. Both the shravaka, or hearer practitioner, and the prateka buddha, or solitary realizer practitioner, attain a kind of arhat-hood, relative or corresponding to each of their paths the bodhisattva is also liberated from samsara but in a different way the bodhisattva has also pacified karma and kleshas but retains what is called a slight or innate form of klesha which actually relates to dualistic perception it's a cognitive style of klesha the disturbance of mind that comes about simply by experiencing things dualistically. Now, why would they do that? Why in the world would they retain that? Well, it's not a choice. (laughs) It's a natural byproduct of not having completed their path all the way to their complete and perfect end. Why does that matter? Because it is that subtle obscuration, which we call a cognitive obscuration, to set it up against the klesha obscuration or emotional obscuration that is completely wiped out, that cognitive obscuration allows bodhisattvas to voluntarily take birth in samsara for the benefit of other beings. So we hear, for example, very often His Holiness Dalai Lama is a bodhisattva. He is the 14th Dalai Lama. What does that mean? It means that this is a mind stream that has chosen to take form in a particular way 14 times to establish a continuum of service to other beings. This is essentially what a bodhisattva does. It's the element of their practice. From the moment of realization, they begin to develop a continually refined mindset that leads all the way up to what is described in my lineage as perfect and complete enlightenment. In the word, Buddhahood, the complete awakening that has eradicated ignorance altogether. So now we find that not only is samsara rather complicated, not only are there these 84,000 kinds of klesha, which boil down to craving as sort of the... uh, Poster child for all Kleshas. And now we find that Nirvana has lots of classifications. What is it with all these categories and classifications? Well, what I find really interesting is to go back to that first teaching, the non public teaching, the private speech of the Buddha in the afterglow of his enlightenment. This peace, so profound, this unpolluted uncreated, clear light, this nectar-like dharma I have found." This is how the Buddha describes his direct experience of nirvana, his experience of enlightenment, so ephemeral, ineffable, that he says, to whomever I may teach it, it would remain an enigma. And he himself decides, I will remain silent and stay here alone in the forest. A legend has it that the devas, spiritual beings, gods, thought, well, we can't have this. He can't just stay in the forest by himself, silent. There are some folks who have, quote, little dust in their eyes. And if he speaks to them, they will hear him and they will take it in and they will integrate that and be able to actually make sense of this enigma. So they encourage the Buddha to go and teach. He decides to go find his previous colleagues after a scan of the world for who will be most receptive for his teachings. And he goes from Bodhgaya to Sarnath, a trip which to this day is not the easiest trip on the planet. And he decides to speak to these five disciples and gives the teaching on the Four Truths. There are lots of different renditions of this first sutta, the sutta on the turning the wheel of dharma or setting forth the wheel of dharma. But basically, if we get the executive summary on the four truths, what are they? What does the Buddha say about this peace so profound, this unpolluted, uncreated, clear light? this nectar-like dharma he has found. In summary, the first words out of his mouth are recognize suffering. What? How did we get from peace so profound to recognize suffering? What happened? What was going on in that road from this beautiful place in Bodh Gaya to this beautiful place in Sarnath, where the Buddha decided that the way people will pierce this enigma is not to tell them about this peace so profound, but to tell them about suffering. What happened is that the Buddha is expressing one of the qualities of Buddhahood, skillful method. The Buddha starts right where we are, in our experience. Grounded in what we know. Anybody out there never experience any pain in their life? Anybody out there never experience a pleasure they wanted to hold on to but can't? Anybody out there never experience this sort of existential questioning? Something you couldn't say is bad or good, but is always kind of in the background, makes you wonder. That's why the Buddha starts with dukkha. Then when he has our attention, he says, well, if there's a cause to this dukkha, that means we can diagnose it. We can treat this. We talked about this before. The Buddha presents these four truths as pairs of cause and result. The result is the dukkha, the various kinds of unsatisfying, unfulfilling discontent that populate life life is tragic. Even in the midst of our beauty, there is tragedy that tinges the edges of our experience. The Buddha is saying that if there's a cause to that, that means it can be cured. There is a cause. The cause is craving and the entire catalog of all of the kleshas that drive mind to act contrary to the true nature of things. And when you act contrary to the true nature of things, the result is also contrary to that. If the true nature of things is bliss, peace, clarity, wisdom, loving kindness, acting contrary to that yields experiences opposite to those wonderful qualities innate to our mind. That's how the Buddha describes samsara, cyclic existence, that vicious cycle, in the first two truths. In the next two truths, he's laying out, again, a cause and result pair. The cause, in this case, is the true path, that eightfold noble path, the eightfold path of realized beings that yields a result, true cessation. cessation of craving that yields a cessation of all three kinds of suffering. Again, those are technically the suffering of suffering, the suffering of change, and the pervasive suffering of conditioned existence. I like to refer to them more conversationally as obvious suffering, shifting suffering, and universal or pervasive suffering. Nirvana, to just get down to it, is that full and complete expression of our own true nature. It is the unimpeded, undisturbed manifestation of Buddha nature. So we talked about craving and kleshas. We described how kleshas are any mental event any emotional event that disturbs the natural tranquility of mind why does that matter that tranquility is shot through with all of these beautiful qualities the qualities of caring delight equanimity love joy wisdom fearlessness and ability Precisely what state of mind, what object of craving is worth disturbing that? What if you offered your time, your energy, your very life to extinguishing craving, pulling the linchpin out of that vicious circle, so the cycle of birth, illness, aging, and death, birth, illness, aging, and death without end, falls apart, a spoke in the wheel. What if you eradicated ignorance, pulling up from the very root, the source of craving itself, of samsara as a whole, upending the very foundation of misperception so the entire structure disintegrates without any possibility of return? What's left? Nirvana, the bliss of peace past all grief, which in its ultimate expression is our own true essence, the Buddha nature, wise, compassionate, and powerful.
0: I just loved hearing you talk about this teaching, the cessation of suffering and really tying it into what we've been talking about up to this point. I I feel like you've been speaking so beautifully about the cessation throughout this podcast. And you talked about it as fire burning through duality and being in a constant state of replenishment rather than being thirsty. And I've been Taking these as descriptions of liberation, but you've been talking in this teaching about nirvana, and I'm wondering is there a difference between liberation and
1: nirvana? This is a fantastic question because, again, it can vary in different traditions of Buddhism. So what I am saying in this podcast may not make a lot of sense to listeners who are used to a lexicon from a different tradition of Buddhism than the Mahayana and particularly Vajrayana aspects of Tibetan Buddhism. But yes, there is a difference. So when we talk about nirvana from the perspective of the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, it's a very broad term. It includes liberation, but it is not only liberation. Liberation, from this perspective, is the complete freedom from samsara, never falling back to this involuntary cycle of birth, illness, aging, and death. However, the bodhisattva, who is liberated, does, if they wish, return to samsara. She might appear in any different ways. They might appear as a human, as an inanimate object, as an animal or other creature. They are liberated in the sense of being out of that involuntary cycle, but they are continuing on a path to omniscience. Omniscience is another word for Buddhahood. I want to be very clear. Omniscience does not mean you know the numbers on the lotto this Saturday. (laughs) That's not the kind of omniscience that we're talking about when it comes to Buddhas. This is the knowledge of all things just as they are in their true nature, the knowledge of what it takes to be free of samsara. So, liberation includes lots of different degrees of evolution of a Buddhist path. From this perspective, the arhat, whether it's a shravaka or prateka buddha arhat, and those Sanskrit words again mean a hearer or disciple for shravaka and solitary realizer for prateka buddha. From this perspective, they are liberated from samsara, no chance of falling back into that pit. Yet, they have not attained perfect and complete enlightenment of Buddhahood. So enlightenment or nirvana encompasses all of that, liberation as well as Buddhahood. Many times we'll often say the three kinds of nirvana to relate to Shravaka, Prateka Buddha, Arhats, and Bodhisattvas. Okay, I appreciate
0: you saying more about that because I had been feeling like, I'm not really sure I understand everything you're saying about Arhats and Bodhisattvas. I might continue to have a somewhat incomplete understanding. Um, But I know that there are different motivations for practice in different types of Buddhism. And so is what you're talking about related to the distinction between seeking enlightenment for one's own realization versus seeking enlightenment in order to free all beings from suffering?
1: Traditionally, there is a difference between... Vehicles of Buddhism, where there are some, I would say, ideals that the practitioner is aiming for, which may be personal salvation or liberation from samsara, or may extend to not only oneself attaining the level of arhat, that first level of nirvana. I love the Tibetan for arhat, it means the foe destroyer. Who's the foe? The kleshas are the foe. One of the big things about all Buddhist practice, and it's right there with the arhat, is recognizing the kleshas as our foe, not being walking lockstep where they are leading us. So the first thing is the commonality, the recognition that samsara is something to dismantle, that misperception is to be undone. That is the liberation of the arhat in the hearer vehicle, It's the liberation of the arhat in the solitary realizer vehicle. And to an extent, it's also the liberation of the bodhisattva in the bodhisattva vehicle. The difference is that the level of arhat is considered something that happens individually. That rupture of the kleshas and rebirth is so total that should the arhat become aware of the wish to do more for others, there's no way to connect, there's no way to attain rebirth in samsara. The bodhisattva's subtle obscuration is a kind of veil that allows for a voluntary rebirth in samsara. So liberated because that rebirth is not involuntary like us, but also able to engage other beings. So there is that difference in that motivation, and it's built into each of these paths. The intention in each of these three paths is in line with the result. The amount of positivity generated by the practice, which technically we call merit, is in line with the result, and therefore a particular result is what distinguishes the three kinds of paths, the three kinds of nirvana. Thank you that's a
0: really helpful clarification it it's just reminding me and because you already brought up gambling with the with the lottery i i'll just continue on that <laughs> it's just reminding me of when i well one of the things that i like about um practicing with the intention of liberating all beings from suffering is that it's actually a stronger motivation for me than just the idea of attaining enlightenment for myself. And it reminds me of when I used to play poker with a bunch of people, and we would have a $5 buy-in. And so we would play, and at some point in the evening, I would just kind of get tired of it. And so I would just go all in and, you know, lose all my money so that I could go read a book or something. And so everyone decided that I needed a stronger motivation to stay in the game. And so what we decided is that if I won, then I would donate my winnings to charity. And that was a great motivation for me. Then I really wanted to win because, you know, just $5, you know, like for myself, I didn't mind losing that. But the idea of losing a possible donation to a charity that I really care about, was much more important. So so that oh, that just makes me think of one of the benefits for me of having that intention in my practice.
1: Yes, I mean, the bodhisattva ideal of the Mahayana is to attain enlightenment for the sake of being able to bring all beings to that state. And I want to be very clear, these differences in ideal aren't like you know teams, <laughs> you know there's the, there's the Arhat team and the Bodhisattva team, and you're on different teams. that's not how it works. Bodhisattvas appear as teachers of Buddhism in all traditions of Buddhism, and especially nowadays in modern world where the Dharma is extending in a very multicultural way, I think the divisions that we see historically between different lineages and different traditions of Buddhism are a little grayer. And what you're talking about is really vital because there is something very enlivening and very daunting at the same time. The sheer daunting character of saving all beings is what makes the blood of bodhisattvas run red and powerful. That's what really makes them motivated. It's said that for a bodhisattva to think of being liberated from samsara themselves without the ability to benefit other beings is worse than living in a hell realm. Mm -hmm. It's so hard for them to imagine that they can be in this pristine state of blissful peace without access to bringing other beings to that state that it's unbearable. So yes, there is that special kind of juice, that zing that comes from that deep well of compassion, not just any compassion, all of the realized beings have compassion. But this is a compassion that begins to empathize with other beings to an extent where it is impossible to leave them behind. Because think about it. Here's this beautiful prayer that His Holiness Dalai Lama loves from Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva, a classic text of Indian Buddhism. As long as sentient beings remain, as long as samsara remains, may I too remain and dispel the sufferings of the world. How long does samsara remain? How long do sentient beings exist? There's no end. It's a very poetic way of saying always, this is an immense motivation, and the Bodhisattva sees that motivation the way you're describing it as something that actually spurs them to action
0: Great, thank you for that clarification and 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 I can see how you know different motivations might be might fit best for different people, too, you know, so I think it's great that they're, one of the things that I appreciate about Buddhism is that there are so many different practices that, um, you know, that, that
1: may be useful for different people. Definitely. I get, I get very offended when um, people put down arhats or the path that leads to arhathood. It's an immense realization. It's an immense path. The attainment of an arhat, the compassion of an arhat, is not something that we can imagine, and it's definitely not something to put down.
0: Well, and I can also see where in my life, you know, I have enough economic resources and privilege that, like playing poker, losing five dollars isn't a big deal to me. But that's certainly not true for everyone. And so, so for me, I needed that other motivation, you know. In in some ways, because My life is pretty good and and relatively easy. And so it really helps me to reflect on not just my own suffering, but really to reflect on everybody's suffering to generate that motivation to practice.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really key. In many ways, the Dharma is very much like that. It sings to the tune of the mind that is hearing it. It resonates with the interests and the motivation of the mind listening. So the Buddhas are always teaching in line with the interests, the motivations, the conditions of each and every hearer.
0: So I was thinking about something you said in the episode on craving. You said, the Buddha is inciting a spiritual uprising within us. And I love your description of that. And it made me think about potential parallels with uprisings we see in society that are trying to move toward liberation. The farm workers movement, feminism, Stonewall, Black Lives Matter. And in the U.S., we have laws the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil Rights Act, Americans with Disabilities Act. And I thought, okay, so there's, there's a desire for liberation that we see in those movements. and And then there's, you know, the country making a decision to act. And maybe that's like taking a vow and saying, this is what we're going to do. You know, we're going to do things differently. But that desire to change and saying that the change is going to happen is clearly not enough for liberation. We we have these infrastructures that were developed in and continue to support the inequities. And so we have to change also how we act. We have to change our habits. But if we've been doing something for many years, if we had, you know, slavery for hundreds of years, maybe it's going to take that many years to have a different habit of, you know, for full liberation for black people in the United States, because we've got to ingrain it the same way that we had ingrained the the negative habits. But then I was also thinking, and and my work actually in psychology deals with this very granular level of what we internalize in terms of prejudice and in terms of internalized stigma, our, our beliefs that we have about other people and about ourselves. And I was thinking, oh, well, maybe this is sort of like view, like our understanding of reality. So I was just thinking about how liberation isn't easy. You know, there are all of these steps that are necessary. You've got to have the will. You've got to make a decision and take a vow. And then you've got to act um, in certain ways. And then you've got to change your understanding of things. And, and And I think we probably need all of these things on a societal level in terms of reaching full liberation for for any of these marginalized groups. And so I was just thinking about that and curious what your thoughts are.
1: There are ways that those analogies mesh, and there are ways that they don't. What are some of the ways that they do mesh? One thing to me uh, that feels really critical, and you see it in society and in culture, is there are things happening under the level of conscious awareness before they come out into the open and then they come out into the open and it reorients our consciousness as a people as a culture as a society maybe not rarely ever every single individual in that society and that culture at once but that critical mass that reorientation towards a better world is something that cannot be stopped. It can take time, it can be delayed, it can seem like it's taking forever, but it has a momentum that is sure and steady. And the dharma that reorientation of mind is turning away from the things of samsara as an end in and of themselves, the big house, the trophy, husband, the whatever it may be, all of the trappings of success in samsara as ends in and of themselves and turning towards the dharma, liberation and omniscience, nirvana, as the only real ends that function in and of themselves. So I see some kind of parallels there. And also that sense of there is a gradual progression. There is a period where there is evolution. When we look even more closely, for example, at the individual paths to nirvana, the path of the shravaka arhat, the foe-destroyer, or the path of the bodhisattva, there are individual levels of attainment along the way. There are steps. It goes in a seamless progression. And then there's a moment. There's a moment that changes everything. Yes, we do need to replace bad habits with good. But if we have to take down every single kletia, every single misperception one by one, like picking leaves off of a tree, they're endless we would never be done. The peace that the Buddha is showing in these four truths is that by finding the origin, craving, by finding even the source of that origin, ignorance, we get down to the root. We uproot that poisonous tree, whether it be samsara, systemic racism, or whatever it may be. It's that reorientation towards the actual source of the issue, that empowerment to uproot that source that brings the whole thing crashing down. That's how I also see that analogy. Eventually, there is a moment where it just stops, like the Berlin Wall coming down. Decades, it's sitting there, monolithic. One day to the next, it's gone.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to share? Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Yeshe and Tanya. Next, you'll hear Heather with a song and then Zopa offering a guided meditation. Shivni is our Tibetan singing bowl artist. Thanks for listening. May all beings benefit.
2: I've heard the cries of suffering from popper to richest king, how can this tragic cycle be undone? Well, it goes like this for noble truths, the eightfold path, start with right view, not enough from all we saw to bring about full freedom in our nation. If you have the will, then take a vow.
3: begin our meditation, please take a moment just to feel your body, feel your seat, feel the upliftedness of your spine, feel the energy in your body and turn your mind to your breath to arriving here and now. As usual, we will begin with a little bit of shamatha, of settling our minds simply by following our breath. So let's just take a couple of moments to follow the inhalation and exhalation of the breath, to become grounded in the present moment, in whatever it is that you're feeling, being, right here and right now. Welcome it in as the breath flows in and out, and as we allow our minds to settle, to gentle around that experience. in this state of calmness, of having come to the present moment, allowing our minds to be present just with the right here and now, we'll turn to our analytical meditation. And for today's analytical meditation, We're going to begin simply by allowing ourselves to recognize the tragedy of the state that we are in, where we are endlessly chasing after a lasting happiness, but going from one suffering to another. Allow yourselves to touch the bleeding heart of your experience, that vulnerability really let it into your awareness without shying away. Normally we don't do this because we've been disappointed so many countless times. We give up hope of something better. We end up coping by turning a blind eye to the situation, trying to coast along on the surface, And in that way, remaining willfully ignorant. But as we've seen this week, it doesn't have to be like that. And the first step is simply allowing ourselves to recognize that deep dissatisfactory nature of how we've been going about this precious life. So take a couple minutes to analyze, to investigate, to see these rough edges of our experience and how that disappointment and going from one set of disappointment to another, continually shifting the focus of what we think we need in order to finally get to that place of happiness, keeps leading us astray, keeps stringing us along, Allowing ourselves to feel that feels like heartbreak. And this is the first crucial step. It's not the only step. It's not where we'll leave it, but it is the first step. So please pause this recording and take some time to rest right in that heartbreak. If you find yourself getting distracted, gently call your attention back to that poignancy and rest again until it fades and then investigate analyze until you get that heartbreaking poignancy once again so we'll spend just a minute now meditating in that way but this is really something we need to cultivate in the space and time of our own private individual lives. So please pause the recording. so as we rest in this place there's often this deep wellspring of sorrow that we touch into this is a meaningful sorrow but it's also not the end in and of itself we don't stop here recognizing our situation how we've allowed ourselves to settle for an everyday sort of misery of just going from serial pleasure to serial pleasure, looking for something more, the Buddha is pointing out that just as with any cause and result, our despair, our misery, our weariness, it has a cause, And having a cause, that means there's something that we can do about it. There's something to be done. That uncreated, unpolluted, clear light, that peace so profound, that's not just the nature of the Dharma that the Buddha found. That's the nature of our very minds. And this samsaric way that we've been living is a misperception that we can dismantle. we start to recognize the kleshas as our foes. We start to recognize that thirsting and slaking our thirst is so much less satisfying than the constant state of replenishment that is our very nature, our birthright simply by virtue of being conscious beings. So this meaningful sorrow that we allow ourselves to touch into points out that there is a path leading to the genuine cessation of obvious shifting and pervasive suffering. So to conclude the meditation, move from that meaningful sorrow to one where you start to recognize the potential of the situation rest in the empowerment that you have the path is in your hands so take just a moment now to rest one pointedly in the recognition of that in the recognition that it is in each and every one's own hands the ability to find that lasting peace, that vibrant embodiment that is our very nature. Thank you for all that you do. May this inspire you to offer your life to extinguishing craving, to eradicating ignorance, and thereby becoming a begin for each and every being, our kind mothers.